Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the long controversial push for a proposed machine gun range on Cape Cod might take a hit from the Environmental Protection Agency's latest report, suggesting local residents' drinking water could be jeopardized. And Rhode Island officials are texting residents in high-risk areas, urging them to carry Narcan, a medicine that quickly reverses an overdose. Plus, Republican opposition forced the takedown of a historical marker honoring a New Hampshire labor leader and feminist organizer just weeks after it was unveiled. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, has America's loneliness epidemic helped worsen a more than 20-year decline in civic engagement? More and more people are becoming so desperate because of their loneliness that they're drinking more, they're taking drugs more, and in general, they're dying earlier. The new documentary, Join or Die, links the sharp decline in the unraveling of social groups to the health of everyday Americans and the democracy itself. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Welcome, Arnie. It's a pleasure to be back, Callie. Tim White, investigative reporter and managing editor for WPRI in Rhode Island. Hi, Tim. Hey, Kelly. It's good to be back. I'm glad to have you. And Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape Coast and Islands affiliate of GBH. Hello, Steve. Hi, Kelly. I'm starting with you, Steve, because good grief, there's a lot going on on the Cape. <laughs> it's just you all are in the thick of it. But I do want to start with this machine gun Uh, range proposal. And now this new report that says not only will they be training soldiers on this proposed range with 50 caliber weapons, that sounds huge, Um, the EPA says that the range could jeopardize the uh, drinking water. And that is, I'm sure, not going to go over well to people who maybe didn't even think they had a dog in this fight. Yeah, I think people even just taking a step back, a lot of people may hear this and kind of scratch their heads and say a machine gun range on Cape Cod. So it's a fight that's been going on for a couple of years. This new Environmental Protection Agency report just came out. It really is changing the the playing field here, tilting it against the Massachusetts Army National Guard, which is the body that wants to build this big new machine gun range. And and the very fact that they're here on Cape Cod is because there's a military base on the Cape, which is a legacy from a much earlier time. And this base is big. It incorporates a lot of open space. And already many people in this region kind of question its, its existence in this pretty fragile ecosystem. The Guard, Massachusetts Army National Guard, wants to build a training range for firing these very big machine guns. Like you say, they're 50 caliber, they can shoot a mile. The National Guard says it needs it to train soldiers who currently have to go up to Vermont mostly to train on these weapons. Um, On Cape Cod, there are many concerns about this, including from opponents, including clear cutting 170 acres of forest, which the, the, the Guard says it has to do to create this range. 
Uh, a machine gun range shooting this kind of weapons will be audible from the elementary school. People are concerned about that. But the biggest concern by far is for the Cape's water supply, as you said. It runs underneath the base. It's what's called a sole source aquifer, which means this water supply, this is it for this whole portion of the Cape. It supplies water for more than 200,000 year-round residents. And it's already compromised, and it's compromised by this very same military base. Since the 1980s, this has been a Superfund cleanup site. They've spent more than $1 billion trying to clean this site up and the water supply that's under it. And now the base officials want to build this new range. The Environmental Protection Agency, uh, more than a year ago, said, we're going to look at this closer. And they have been doing the study. The study just came out, and it's pointing to this range as really part of an ongoing concern about the water supply under the basing that it just pre presents too much of a risk to the water supply. They'll be firing more than a million bullets per year, which they feel is almost certain to further compromise that aquifer that goes under the base. So what? a couple quick questions. First of all, since they already are training in Vermont, why wouldn't they just put this range in Vermont then? Right now, the, the Massachusetts Army National Guard says that it takes too long to transport the folks. These are... Uh, you know, National Guard folks, they train over a weekend. If they're going up to Vermont, it takes a day to get up there, a day to get back. Maybe they have a day to train up there. They feel like they need more time to train these folks on this 50 caliber weapon. Um, so they say it's about time and being able to be properly trained. At the same time, there's another range kind of being built in, in another part of Massachusetts. Folks are pointing at that saying like, why don't you make that bigger? Why can't that incorporate some of this training? So uh, there are questions about why here, yes. All right. So now that the the water is involved, um, I'm just saying, wouldn't that just put the kibosh on this? Because, I mean, you know, local residents want their water to be unaffected. And I, I hear you about it's been an ongoing Superfund cleanup site anyway. But now this would just say, OK, we're not even having this discussion anymore because I need my drinking water. I, what other discussion is there to have now that this has come out? It's an interesting question. So the uh, EPA says that this particular finding, this particular report, report is a, a new thing for them because they've opened it up to public comment and uh, additional comment with this finding, which is a draft finding. So the comment period has just started, and it offers not only the public a chance to weigh in, but also the National Guard to come back. And the National Guard hasn't told us what they're response is going to be, but they said that they are, they've promised a robust response. So uh, nobody quite knows what that's going to mean. But I, I think that means, you know, at one level, you it seems to indicate that they're going to push back and say that they really need this and that they can make this safe for the drinking water. So, so Steve, I have, I have, there were three sentences that jumped out at me at your piece. And one is, is that you mentioned that it was a Superfund site. So I'm curious, the review by the EPA was not mandated by law? You mean, I'm just, how is that even possible? Well, the, the whole process started with the National Guard saying we've done a very thorough environmental review and we can Maybe prove not. this is not going to have any significant impact. And that was their words. It'll have no significant environmental impact. Obviously, a lot of local people uh, took concern about a lot of local town officials, uh, nearby town officials took uh, issue with that. And they really pressed the delegation, the national delegation here, Congress and Senate uh, representatives to step up. And they were the ones who really leaned 
on the EPA and said, we want you to take a second look at this. So the EPA report is really a secondary level that was only brought in after the community concerns were made so loud around this. Hmm. Uh, right now, I said it's a draft finding. If it becomes official, it will essentially kill funding for project because uh, a federal government project can't be funded if the EPA finds against it, apparently. Ali, can I weigh in here? Um, you know, this is more of a comment than a question, uh, but a comment on Steve's excellent reporting. I, you know, I grew up on the Cape. Uh, I live in Rhode Island now, but I uh, grew up out there. Uh, and my mother, my elderly mother, is still uh, in the Barnstable, in the town of Barnstable. And I just have to tell you, there is not a lot of trust for the year-round residents on Cape Cod when the government exactly. says, trust us. Mm. Uh, when it comes to this, you know, with the drinking water will be safe. And what's really important to understand about the aquifer that Steve mentioned there is the vast majority of people on the cable, anecdotally, just, you know, all the my friends and everybody where I grew up with, we're all well water out there. It's it's not, you know, we're, we don't go through some town system generally uh, where the water gets filtered or however they add uh, different things to it um, to to clean it up. It is we're drawing directly from the ground. Uh, and that's why it is so hard when the groundwater, the aquifer gets contaminated to fix the problem. So that's exactly. why there's a lot of distrust uh, of, for the people that have seen this play before. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN, Tim White, managing editor for WPRI, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI on Cape Cod. We're talking about the latest news that matters to New England. Well, Tim, while you're talking, let's talk about this um, very interesting strategy to... Uh, fight an overdose overdose epidemic in Rhode Island. Um, and I'm going to let you speak after you hear yourself speak, or <laughs> talking to the Rhode Island Department of Health spokesperson, Joseph Wendelkin, who said the text, text messages let, let residents know two things. Let me just be clear. They're texting residents in high-risk areas, urging them to use Narcan, which is a medicine that reverses um, overdoses. A, there's an increase in overdose activity in the community where you live, so you need to be aware. And B, naloxone is available. It's available free. You can just go online. You can request it. This is you know, really a model that has existed. What we're doing is we're taking it and adapting it in a public health setting to really prevent overdoses and save lives. Who came up with this texting idea, and is it being responded to well? I'll answer the second part first. It is being responded to well, and the evidence that they can point to is there, you've been able to order naloxone for free through the Rhode Island Department of Health for some time now, um, but not a lot of people did it because there wasn't a lot of awareness. What the Department of Health did is they divided the state up into 10 regions. And then when they saw a spike in overdoses in those 10 regions and they tracked data like EMS runs and emergency department visits, they'd send out these text messages. And embedded, Callie, in the text message would be a URL, a unique link. So you click on that and you can order the tech, uh, order the um, naloxone or commonly known as Narcan. So what happened for, for free, for free, and they'll mail it to you. So what happened in one, uh, just for one instance, uh, in the Providence Johnston area, which is sort of a suburb of, of Providence, they saw a spike, they sent out these text messages and the prior year they had um, zero 
request for naloxone, as soon as they sent out that text message, within a week, they get 166 requests wow. for naloxone. So to them, that's the anecdotal evidence of saying it is working. Of course, they can't count how many lives that may have potentially saved, but you know, naloxone does just that. It reverses the effects of an opioid um, overdose. But what we found interesting uh, is we actually, one of my colleagues got one of these texts. He lives in a uh, what turned out to be a, a hot zone for overdoses. And so we looked into it and, and we saw that the state had hired a vendor. And when you looked up that vendor, it's it's a vendor that um, political campaigns use and polling, um, you know, organizations that do political polling. And what they do is they they get cell phone numbers. It's so much harder to do political polling now, I know, because we do it here. We used to be able to call landlines. Now we have to hire these vendors to uh, get cell phones in targeted areas, because if we only want to poll in a certain congressional district, we don't want to accidentally be asking questions in the wrong congressional district. So they have to be really zeroed in. And that's what the Department of Health decided to do. They ripped a page out of a campaign playbook and decided to use it in the opioid epidemic. Something that I, you know, what they'll tell you is has really been overshadowed by the global COVID-19 pandemic but has not gone away. And unfortunately, in Rhode Island, at least, um, the data from 2022, which is still being put together, is on track uh, to, uh, to match the number of overdose deaths that we saw in 2021, which was the deadliest year on record. And to underscore um, what your person said to you, your official person, um, this epidemic has not gone away and it was overshadowed by the pandemic and it, it keeps popping up um, in places again to just demonstrate how devastating it is in many communities. So that is still happening. All right, Arnie, let's talk about uh, your legislature going a different way um, on a bill um, that was uh, focused on transgender children in New Hampshire, but uh, expected to uh, be supported by a Republican-led uh, legislature, but it got turned down. So there was a bill, as someone said, cruelty was the point to out transgender kids. And uh, they always frame it as parental rights, okay? It's really interesting. When you have gender affirming care, you can try to stop that because you know there are no parental rights. But when you wanna out a child, then it is about parental rights. And uh, the bill went down 195 to 190 uh, on Thursday of this week. And everyone thought that the bill was gonna pass. It had tremendous support from the governor. It obviously had support from the Republican Party. It's part of the, the national Republican agenda uh, that's so anti-trans. And and it went down, everyone. And people were literally in tears. They could not believe it. They worked so hard to kill this bill because it was going to require teachers to do something that was done in confidence. I mean, they're, they're there to protect kids. We understand the connection between trans and potential suicide. And if a parent wasn't having a conversation with their child and they didn't recognize their child, then trust me, if a teacher was going to out a child, it wasn't necessarily going to benefit that kid and keep that kid safe. And I just was, I mean, it literally was remarkable. And I was looking at uh, a letter that was sent by the New Hampshire Council of Churches. And the New Hampshire Council of Churches uh, was opposed to this bill, House Bill 272. And they did something really beautiful. They quoted Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 commands us to love your neighbor as yourself. 
We are not to cause harm or to make students' lives harder, but instead to show compassion, seek understanding, and to craft systems that care for their well-being. If you have a relationship with a student, then guess what? You know that student is vulnerable? You should not be obligated to expose them. This is not about parental rights. It's about protecting kids. Yeah, from the Bible, in case people are unfamiliar with the yeah, source. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. I'm just I was just I'm 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 over the moon and, and I'm really proud because my state is I mean, we're an interesting state. We're Republican, but we're really not, you know, live free or die. We're kind of libertarian. You know, we don't trust big government. We don't trust big church. We don't trust any of those things. And this 272 was so not in keeping with who is really sort of the soul and nature of my state. And yet it's part of the Republican agenda. And I'm just very proud of the New Hampshire legislature because they killed the bill and the bill is killed for the year. So uh, let's hope it doesn't come back. Well, as I said, it's going in a different direction as we've seen in some other states. So it'll be interesting to watch and see uh, responses from around um, the country. We'll see. Uh, now I'm coming back to you, Steve, because we were talking about uh, possible contamination of water and this um, radioactive wastewater in Cape Cod Bay has been is another ongoing um, conversation. Uh, I would say loud discussion happening on Cape Cod, um, Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station wants to dump one million gallons of wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. Activists are saying, eh, 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 we don't know what's in there. Uh, so we're in a wait period to some degree because the samples of the water have been sent to the lab and they're going to be announced. But um, it's it's a lot of tension around this. A lot of tension around this. And this stretches kind of all the way up to the governor's office, too. A lot of people calling on Governor Healy to be watching this and start to try to push back. So it's Pilgrim Nuclear Plant, which is up in Plymouth. It was shut down in the summer of 2019. And when it was shut down, it was bought by a big company called Holtec, whose one of their business models has been to buy nuclear plants and decommission them. And in, as part of decommissioning a nuclear plant, they have all this water to get rid of. This is water. Some of it was used to cool the spent fuel pool. So it was in direct contact with the nuclear uh, you know, fuel that was used to run the plant. It's a million gallons. The easiest thing for them to do is to dump it right into Cape Cod Bay. Company says that by the time it will dump the water, the water will be filtered and cleaned enough to be harmless. And anyway, anything that's in it would be flushed away by the ocean, essentially. Uh, opponents are understandably concerned. They say that this is nuclear wastewater. It will have nuclear contamination, including tritium, which is this radioactive element that can't be cleaned out no matter what. So a lot of kind of pushing back and forth and Cape Cod Bay, you know, it's home to endangered right whales. There's a lot of significant aquaculture all around Cape Cod Bay, down the south coast and all the way out the Cape, which is significant to the economy. There's public health concerns. And then there's just the concern of public perception of risk, you know, that the whole region is so dependent on tourist economy. And if somebody starts saying, oh, they dumped a million gallons of radioactive <laughs> water out there, that's that's not a great selling point for Cape Cod. So uh, really at the heart of this right now is jurisdiction. Who gets to decide? Uh, a lot of, most of the jurisdiction over nuclear issues is mostly given to the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC. Opponents say it's largely staffed by former members of the nuclear industry, which does appear to be true. 
but the impacts here would all be local. So local, both state and towns are fighting for more jurisdiction in this fight. And as you say, there's water samples. They're going to find out exactly what is supposed to be, you know, what supposedly is in this water from these samples. And, and they're going to be talking about what the samples show in an upcoming meeting on Monday. So uh, a lot of people are paying very close attention to this. May I ask a question, Steve? What, what mm -hmm. happens to the water if they don't dump it? Where does it go? Okay. I just, I mean, I want to know what the, I want to know what my choices are. I this guess, is really is a good asking. question, Arnie, because <laughs> this points to what's really behind this for I think a lot of people, which is that it's about money. So mm -hmm. Holtec, when it bought this plant to decommission it, what it really bought was a one billion dollar fund that you know ratepayers have been plant paying into for years, electric ratepayers for decommissioning the plant, and if Holtec can do this cheaply. And right now they figure if they do it the way they have it lined up, they're going to make $250 million. They'll have $250 million left when it's decommissioned and likely more if you factor in reimbursements from the federal government, things like that. So the opponents say that dumping is simply cheap and expedient for Holtec. And in fact, Holtec identified two different other ways that they could disperse some of this water. One of it is to truck it to facilities you know, much further inland, as I understand it. Another is to uh, they they can just hold it on the site until it you know loses a lot of its contamination, its uh, radioactive contamination. As I understand it, I'm not a nuclear physicist here, but there do seem to be a couple of other options that would take a lot more money and sort of investment. And so a lot of people are saying this is about money for Holtec. Hmm. Tim, you got a comment? Well, I was just thinking, like, what an interesting business model uh, this is. And and I was going to ask Steve, like, how do they possibly make money? And then when you explained yeah. that they're basically trying to tap into this fund that ratepayers have been paying into right. uh, for so many years, and they're playing the margin, right, Steve? That's what they're trying to do is play the margin in. All right, if we can clean this up for a half $500 million, that's a profit of $500 million for them. Mm -hmm. And not only... Not only that, so they have another plant that they bought in Indian Point in New York State, which they are also proposing to release the wastewater into the river there. Oh, God. Uh, so this is definitely seems to be part of their business model. Model, exactly. <laughs> but this is something that will get attention nationally. I mean, it, it, this will not be a small thing, whichever way it goes. And in part, it's because a lot of these nuclear plants, plants were all built at the same kind of time in the 70s, and they're all aging out now. And nobody, when they built them, nobody had a plan for how to, to decommission them, how to unbuild them. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN, Tim White, managing editor for WPRI in Rhode Island, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI on Cape Cod. We're discussing the major stories in the Boston region. All right, now, um, in Rhode Island, Tim, the flock cameras, this is really interesting. There are cameras, as we know, if you're on the highway, they, and that uh, will take pictures of your license plate if you run the toll booth or whatever. Uh, but these are different. These are the kind of cameras that are just positioned all around um, the city. And um, in Providence, they've installed quite a few, generally around intersections where the police say a lot of crimes are may or may not be committed with with cars so this makes sense um, but uh, no one's surprised that the ACLU and others are concerned about privacy they say they only keep the images for 30 days but then where does it go now they're talking about 
maybe they'll sh they will share it with other law enforcement, you know, all this kind of stuff. So and and they're expanding it um, to other cities and places in Rhode Island. Um, what brought this on? All of a sudden, why did you guys decide to the state? I mean, um, that this was important to do. Well, I mean, if you listen to the proponents of plot cameras, they say, look, they solve crimes. There's if there's a shooting at a certain location in Providence. Um, they can uh, look at all the cameras around that area and uh, track a license plate that hightails it out of there. And and look, you know, the police like to call them license plate readers, like you referenced if you're on the pike and, and they, they get the license plate so they can charge you. That is not what these are. They uh, You should always push back when someone says they're license plate readers because they can identify a car through a bumper sticker. They can identify a car through... Uh, make and model through color. It takes a picture of the entire car itself, not just zeroing in on the uh, on the license plate uh, alone. So it, this is where the ACLU is concerned about privacy interests of people. And they are also concerned in others, not just the ACLU, concerned about whether or not this technology will be abused. For instance, you have a police officer who thinks their partner is having an affair and they want to track mm -hmm. um, their their partner's car. Uh, they can tap into the system, click through blah, 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 and pull it up and, and track their partner. Now, what police will tell you is, look, we're able to see who goes into the system. So if it's abused, it can, uh, you know, we can address it. Um, but that's after the fact, uh, the opponents of these systems say. You can address it after they've already done something bad with the information, because that's how you learn that they've, they've abused the system when they do something bad. So there are a lot of concerns as this thing is expanding. We have only 25, I say only, but we have 25 cameras in Providence. Flock put them up for free as sort of a, a test drive. Uh, city council was not happy about it because the police department didn't go to city council first. They just um, approved it because there was no budgetary process for it since they were free and now they're going ahead and using police department money again circumventing city council to install another 60 cameras in providence in the in the coming year so they're going to be everywhere and you know for people who are concerned about the big brother state their their concerns about the expansion of this program and as you said Callie briefly I'll wrap up here but the sharing of this information so it's not just contained within the Providence Police Department. We have other municipalities here, Cranston, uh, for instance, that have these flock cameras. They're, they're uh, next door, Woonsocket, uh, northern part, part of the state, where if they're tapped into the flock system, um, and everybody pretty much uses that brand, it's like Kleenex for tissues, um, then they can access other departments if those departments give permission. And there are also private entities that use these systems. You have condo associations, so you have uh, housing uh, complexes that use these flock cameras. Are they sharing this information with law enforcement or vice versa? So there's a lot of hand-wringing about what's going on. Tim, can I ask about the business model for Flock? Uh, you mentioned that they didn't charge anything for the first year, so nobody had to really know about it because the police weren't going to spend any money, but they were being given this gift. 
Is that how they do it everywhere? <laughs> like in a lot of ways, think about it. You, you get the buy-in. The cops are going, oh, this is great. This is great. They didn't need to get approval. No one in the city council knew because, quote, unquote, there was no money exchanged. And then once they're there for a year, then they go for the, the, the big guns, cost 480000 whatever. We want 60 of them. But they already have like a, a receptive audience because the cops love it. And now they're their advocates. And so Flock doesn't even have to hire anyone because the cops are doing it for them. And I just feel like this is exactly how they operate. You know, Arnie, this isn't a gift. Think, think about this sales pitch. Okay. There was a, uh, a man <laughs> I'm crossing thinking the about street. it, Tim. Go the, on. The, the, there was a man crossing the street um, in Providence and was hit by a driver and the driver sped off. Uh, within a couple of days, I think, don't hold me to it, they were able to, using the flock cameras, able to track down that driver, uh, arrested her. She is now facing trial and they, you know, the police are going, look, Flock solved this crime. Exactly. And so why would why would the city ever go back and go, you know, we're going to get exactly. rid of something that solved crime. The, the only thing that's missing from that equation is, you know, you could say, so that is the only way you could have solved that crime. Exactly. You're saying your police department is totally neutered without having a technology like this or you don't have officers good enough to solve crimes before these flock cameras uh, ever existed. So yes, it is a huge part of their sales pitch. Here you go, you can have the toy for free for a while. And then, oh, well, if you don't wanna pay for it, we're gonna take it away. And that isn't so appetizing to uh, police. I just wanna point this out, that while this kind of um, surveillance um, might be very uh, accepted by police officers, body cams were fought tooth and nail and still are in some communities. So that's just an interesting point to think about. Like, what does that mean? Um, and and there are concerns about privacy and surveillance as it goes along with that, too. But but Callie, remember, he said that it was more than the license. It will pick up the car, the bumper sticker. Well, wait a minute. It could. Well, but couldn't it pick someone up who's driving uh, while black? I mean, they keep saying that they're not going to. And so could body cams. I'm just telling you that the, the, the it's interesting to me that the acceptance of this is, you know, obviously very enthusiastic as opposed to the body cam response in general, not in every community, has been quite negative and a pushback. You know, they've been forced to accept in many of these uh, police communities, but that was not the general feeling. And often um, those body cams came as pilot programs and no cost to the police um, departments either. Just an interesting thing to think about. But I'm going to move on to this, my last story here. Arnie, if you were very excited about New Hampshire and very proud of them earlier, I wonder how you feel about this historical marker for Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was cited as a feminist uh, organizer and labor leader of some note. Um, there was a a sign honoring her that was unveiled. And then just two weeks after that, it was taken down because um, of Republican opposition from the state legislature. They found out that she had joined the American Communist Party in the 1930s and said that her membership in the Communist Party was an offense to veterans and that had to go down. So just getting your response. Well, as another rebel girl in New Hampshire, because that's what she's known as, the rebel girl, I've actually offered my property as a place to put the marker back up in Concord. Uh, but it's it's interesting. So I, I responded this way when I heard the story, and I'll, I'll, I'll actually share my tweet. I said, the GOP has removed the historical marker for the rebel girl, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. She was a feminist who advocated for workers' rights, for freedom of speech. She became a leader in the Communist Party, believing that capitalism was at the 
the root of inequality. I wonder where she got that from. Uh, But she loved America. It could be paradise on earth if it belonged to the people, but not to a small owning class. That's a quote from her. No one can take my love of country away from me, but the same GOP is in love too with a hater of democracy, a sexual abuser, a liar, a man who's obsessed with revenge. So thinking about the decision of the Republican governor and his executive counselors to remove the marker, maybe that rebel girl is still uh, a rebel and someone to be feared. So it's just, it's, I mean, the marker says everything. They say she was a founder of the ACLU, everyone. She was a labor leader. She was a libertarian. She was a feminist organizer. She joined the, uh, the, uh, the industrial workers of the world at age 17 and gave fiery speeches. And the other thing that's important to remember is it's a historical marker. It is not about an honor. It is actually marking something in history that is notable. And she was notable because she was born in Concord, New Hampshire in 1890. And you and I both know that stories of history are complex. They don't always make everyone feel good, but they are really something that we are. And you need to know the complexity of our history, both to understand who we are today because we understand who we were in the past. And it's just so interesting. And even on the marker, they announced the fact that she was a member of the Communist Party. So they didn't hide it. There was no bait and switch, but they were offended at this piece of history. Well, you know what? That's what history is about. Well, well, I would say uh, in closing, because I'm going to I'm just going to I just wanted you to respond to it. since you're representing New Hampshire in this conversation, this seems to me to be a part of an ongoing, uh, certainly national conversation we are embroiled in about symbols and signs and, of course, history and uh, and the truth about it thereof. So it's not surprising to me in a way. And it's interesting to see how many forms and shapes it takes as, as you know, we're all struggling through understanding the complexity of history, as you say. So... Um, it's this is not a one thing just for New Hampshire. I think this is a bigger part of a larger uh, public conversation we're having across the country. Well, whether it's anti-CRT, whether it's whitewashing history, whether it's you know making people uncomfortable, I mean, all these things. Well, you know what? That's what history is. History is not about comfort. I it's I hear not. what you're saying, but I'm speaking specifically about the yeah. public conversation about symbols, signs, markers, yeah. and monuments. So mm-hmm. there we are. More to come and another conversation with you three who have lots to say. But right now, I'm going to tell you thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Tim White is an investigative reporter and managing editor for WPRI in Rhode Island. And Steve Junker is the managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape Coast and Islands affiliate of GBH. Coming up. When was the last time you talked to your neighbor? Do you even know your neighbor's name? Are you a member of a local community or civic group? A new documentary traces the groundbreaking research pioneered some 20 years ago about how a healthy democracy depends on those kinds of connections. Join or Die makes a compelling argument about how and why the loss of would-be joiners has led to a democracy in crisis. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 